Hello and welcome to The Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of The Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Red. I'm Chin. I'm Miles. And I'm Anthony. Today, Alex sits down with Andre Lamoth, tech guru, author, hardware and software engineer, and lead engineer on the upcoming Intellivision Amico console. We talk about his long career in the industry and what he's up to now. But first, let's get into some news. Yes, we'll get into some news, but I got to say the Intellivision Amico is something that I've been, it's been brought up and it's like a very interesting rehashing of the Intellivision. It, the Intellivision was like that, uh, was that game console that had the number pad and the, uh, the dial up top, essentially looking like a phone. Um, or a um, uh, TV remote. That's what yes, I thought of it as, yeah. But with, 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 a, with a phone cable mm-hmm. like attached to it. Uh, it. It's a very interesting thing, and I'm really stoked to see it be brought back and reimagined. So that'll be something to look forward to. But yes... Something about an Alan Wake remaster has just come in through my headpiece. Uh, this is breaking news, y'all. Um, Alan Wake remaster coming to PlayStation in 4K, I hear. Who knows? But Alan Wake is one of those weird games that I like, but never really got a chance to fully appreciate. It was, for a long time, a Xbox exclusive. And, uh, it came out on Xbox 360, so it's a fairly old game. Uh, it's made by uh, Remedy. It's made by Remedy, the people who made, uh, who recently came out with uh, Control. So it's that same oh, okay. kind of weird uh, sort of Twin Peaksy horror of, you know, things are a little off, but it's the real real world. And I don't know how much you know about Alan Wake. I know nothing about Alan Wake. It's the story of a author who goes on a vacation in like the Washington wilderness, like to some coastal Washington town. And uh, he finds out that the the ghost stories that he's writing are coming to life. And so he has to go out and sort of banish the dark spirits that he's conjuring by accident. It's good fun. Hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds... I'm, uh, I avoid horror, generally. When it comes to, like, movies and games, mm-hmm. uh, the, the jump scares kind of not really get me. Um, what do you guys think about Alan Wake? Have you had any experience with it? Not pretty much, but I've heard it many times. I think one of my friends is a big fan of it, but I just always say, no, 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 I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to touch it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we also have uh, Sonic Colors Ultimate is being released as of this recording today. Uh, and Sonic, uh, with that, there is a Sonic Minecraft DLC being released. It's basically just minecraft sonic it's pixel sonic yeah uh but it looks like it runs fairly well if you want to play a cubular sonic game pick up this dlc judging by their trailer i think they're doing a pretty good job i can't i almost can't tell whether it's it is in the sonic game or it is in the minecraft game but you know you can do everything in minecraft with modding so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think it's there's there's some there's something going on there's something fishy (laughs) um but in unfortunate last news, uh, we have uh, uh, Michael K. Williams uh, was found dead. Uh, he is a fan favorite operator in Battlefield 4, 
in character, and he also came back as a special operations character in the new installment of 2042, um, as well as his other work. Uh, he, unfortunately, has no longer with us. Rest in peace, Michael K. Williams. But now, for some better talk, here is Andre Lamoth with Alex. And we're back with Andre Lamoth. Welcome, Andre. Hello, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, so I wanted to start out with your personal history and how it is you came to get involved in computers and, and programming and embedded systems and so forth. Okay, well, uh, let's see. That's a long story. Uh, I would have to say uh, probably back sometime in the late 70s, uh, two things happened. Uh, one, uh, I started you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons a lot, all right? Mm-hmm. And as I was playing... You know, I started to become fascinated with, uh, you know, computers. Uh, there wasn't much out at the time. So the uh, 2600, Atari 2600 game console was out. And, mm-hmm. of course, the Magnavox uh, Odyssey Pong was out. And so these systems were kind of out, but there was no real computer that you could kind of play with. However, uh, at a local radio shack, uh, they had a TRS-80. So uh, when I found this computer, I would ride my bike every day. Uh, many miles, actually, because it was quite far from our house. And I would go there, sit down, and code on this TRS-80 and and, uh, learn BASIC. So, uh, I don't know, I was about 10 years old at the time. And then over time, now what was was unfortunate about it was there was no way to save your program. So they didn't even have the tape drive. So I typed in these long programs and have to memorize them almost and then just lose them. But that, that, the iterating was good. So uh, I kept doing that. And then my goal was to kind of, you know, how could I make the Dungeons & Dragons games that we were playing uh, as children on the computer? So that was kind of my goal. So I was just desperate to do that. That was my passion. So that's how I started uh, programming, was on a TRS-80 kind of trying to make uh, Dungeons & Dragons games. And so, uh, you know, during that time, I wrote all kinds of things. I wrote, you know, Pong games, breakout games, Lunar Lander games, scrolling games, uh, and then, of course, uh, D&D type games. And then I taught myself, you know, Z80 assembly language. So uh, by the time I got into uh, high school, uh, the Atari 800 uh, came out. And when I saw this, now, of course, the Apple uh, came out, you know, in about, what, 1977, saw the Apple II, but I wasn't too impressed with the graphics, right? When I saw the Atari 800, I was just floored. I could not believe it. You know, of course, the uh, Atari 800 has custom VLSI chips, just an amazing piece of hardware, a decade ahead of its time, at least, uh, at the time. So I talked my parents into buying me one. And of course, at this time, uh, this was a very expensive computer. Even now, it's an expensive computer. So I believe <laughs> we paid, my dad paid, it was like 1250 for the Atari 800. It was 600 for the disk drive. The monitor was like 600 It was a huge investment. <laughs> so, um, but my parents would always support me, whether it was model rockets or electronics or whatever. So they got the computer and, you know, and my dad was worried that I would just play games on it, but I didn't. I just uh, dove into it and started coding all the time learning basic and then of course 6502 assembly language and uh, that's kind of where i learned uh you know programming and computer graphics and the thing about the 800 was that it was so ahead of its time you know you had to learn things like display lists and interrupts and uh, kernel drivers and player missile or sprite graphics bitmap graphics character graphics uh, various optimization techniques so it kind of it, it 
put me ahead by many years, you know, uh, comparing to other people that were just programming on simpler machines like the Apple II or the TRS-80. So, uh, so I started making games on the 800 and uh, publishing them uh, in, in high school. So I would make these uh, shareware games. Uh, at the time, there wasn't really the concept of shareware. There was a couple companies uh, that did this where you could kind of make a game and send it to them and they would mass produce the disc. So I started doing that and uh, made, you know, all kinds of arcade games or clones uh, at the time. And then, uh, you know, as time progressed, you know, uh, went to college, of course, and uh, studied computer science, uh, did a, you know, computer science, mathematics, and electrical engineering uh, triple major at all at the same time. And uh, during that time, uh, you know, I did game development, graphics programming uh, for people, engine programming, Windows and GUI development. So kind of my niche was... Um, uh, companies would hire me to do high-performance graphic systems for them, uh, 2D or 3D graphics. You know, I worked for a software uh, publishing corporation. I did all of their uh, high-speed 2D and 3D rendering engines and bitmap uh, renders and rotators and scalers and all that kind of stuff. I wrote windowing systems for uh, database companies so they could have their own custom GUIs that could work in uh, text modes or bitmap modes. So I did all kinds of that kind of programming. So I, I really kind of focused on graphics, um, optimization, uh, AI, physics, that kind of thing. So that's uh, kind of, you know, uh, how I got into, uh, you know, game development and then, uh, you know, coming towards the 90s uh, when I graduated. At that point, uh, I continued writing games. Uh, and then I started also writing books uh, at the time. Yeah, I was going to say most of our listeners, if they remember you, they probably remember your books. How many have you written at this point? It's a huge number. Well, as far as how many I've written, I've probably myself written about 25 books, but I have co-authored or co-published uh, probably 150 books with my, <laughs> my two series. So the one series, the, the game development series, that the first one was uh, with Wake Group Press, the Black Art series. And then uh, under the black art of video game or 3D programming. and Right. There's, an, there's a black art of 3D uh, uh, game programming, the black art of Java game programming, the black art of visual basic game programming. There's a number of them that were part of the, that series. And then um, uh, Primatech, uh, which went under a, a number of different names, uh, kind of uh, came to me in about, I don't know, 1999, 2000, and they wanted to do a, a game development series. So basically, you know, I would, I had a list of all these ideas of books that I would want to write if I had time, right? So of course I didn't. So anyway, uh, I would find authors for the books and then I would kind of develop the books and tech edit the books and then publish the books uh, through them. And so, you know, through them, you know, we, we published well over a hundred books on everything in game development. So uh, that's kind of, you know, where all the books uh, came from. Uh, at is, the time. There, is there one book in there that you are particularly proud of above all others? Well, there's, yeah, there's a couple. I mean, I would say that the, the book that I, there's two books that I just love. Uh, the, the first one is The Black Art of 3D Game Programming, and mm -hmm. uh, that was published through Wake Group Press. And uh, Mitch Waite uh, basically allowed me absolute free reign to just go nuts and write exactly what I wanted with very little copy editing and very little control. So he got me. And uh, so I, that, that, that book is very special to me. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the, uh, the latter one uh, in 2001, Tricks of the uh, 3D Game Programming Gurus, 
that is that's kind of my uh, my opus. That that book uh, has more about software rasterization and and uh, rendering and uh, optimization than than anything you know ever published since. So that book is really I just wanted to get get it all out of my system you know once and for all. So those two books I would say I'm, I'm most proud of. Uh, and now you seem to be a, a serial console designer as well, as well as a serial book author. Yeah. So, uh, you know, after, after, uh, so I had Extreme Games, which I founded in what, 1995. And, you know, we published hundreds of games uh, under Extreme Games. And then, you know, I started with first person shooters and all that. But of course, in the early 2000s, uh, you know, a lot of th- the game market crashed again, kind of. And what I was waiting for, I kind of got tired of, you know, making software games, right? And I wanted something more challenging. I wanted to build the whole thing. So, uh, you know, I got the idea in my head. I wanted to start building uh, game consoles and educational game consoles to teach people, you know, how would you build the hardware and the software and the firmware and just make the whole thing yourself, like your own little PlayStation or NES or Atari or whatever. So uh, I started developing the uh, X Game Stations in about 2000 two or three and then we launched the first one i think in about 2004 and uh you know and sold these uh, to customers that wanted to learn uh, game development so you know and made a number of them the x game station micro and pico and avar and pick and the chameleons uh then i did the hydra for parallax the multi-core uh, hydra and then during that time of course i also developed gaming hardware for companies uh you know as projects uh for outside companies that wanted gaming hardware so uh, it's a good niche to get into because not a lot of people get the opportunity to build a game console uh, or the resources on the other end to develop and manufacture it because it's uh, you know it's kind of a you know one in a million kind of thing. It's not like a commodity piece of technology that everyone is making. There's only a few, you know. So uh, yeah, so that's how I got into that of building the hardware, and, and then I you know I've been doing that ever since, kind of focused on uh, embedded systems, kind of edgy uh, embedded systems. So gaming hardware, of course now smart watches, smart bands, smart rings. I did a smart ring and a smart band a couple projects ago. Uh, but I'm always looking for a good gaming uh, piece of hardware uh, to develop for somebody. Yeah, it's very, I think that the idea that you had of, of sort of making these more primitive style game consoles just for educational purposes to, you know, to teach the assembly language, to teach the, the actually touching the hardware. It's just such a brilliant idea that was like lost in the 80s and 90s, right? Those old consoles used yeah. to be that way. And right, right. Do you find it that people learn faster or, or really find that like a really great way, a great vector to learn about that sort of? Yeah, yeah. You know, so the, the problem today is no one human being can understand a modern computer or a modern game console. It's just too complex, right? Just the power supply is there's a specialist for the power supply, a specialist for the CPU, for this, for the buses, uh, et cetera, right? What was nice about the older systems. Uh, the Nintendos and Ataris and so forth, is that you could, one human being could completely understand every single bit of it, right? And once you can understand it, then you can see what its constraints are, you can understand what its limits are. And that's a fun feeling because I know exactly what it can do now, how can I make it do amazing things? And, you know, Activision used to do that. They would take the same hardware. People would see a game on the Atari 2600 made by Atari, like a tank or something, it would look horrible. And then they would make something like Pitfall with, you know, hundreds of screens and sound and all kinds of stuff. So as far as education goes, it's a really a great way uh, for software engineers or hardware engineers to kind of learn, here's an entire system where I can really understand the whole thing. And there's no mystery to me. I know exactly what's going on. And that really facilitates 
facilitates learning and, and understanding, and then especially understanding things like optimization. You know, so, uh, yeah, so it's a really great way uh, to learn hardware. Uh, and, and then, you know, like anything, building a, a simplified model of something is always uh, useful. But, of course, you know, the, the premise that I always have is that's great, but, you know, instead of building a checkbook, let's build a game system because that's a lot more fun to play with and learn with, you know? Oh, absolutely. That's always been our, our position here at the museum, right? If you ask a kid, do you want to learn to make a word processor? <laughs> right. Forget it. Do you want to ma- learn to make a video game? The answer is always yes. And they already have 20 ideas for what they want to make. Right, right. Yeah. And, and you know, the uh, the interesting thing is, of course, now years later, people have been reading my book since the 90s, you know, so 25 years and, you know, they contact me and, and they say, you know, I didn't go into game development, but it helped me immensely. And now I'm the CEO of this, you know, web company or this AI company or this whatever service kind of company, because it taught them how to think and how to program in a certain way to make no assumptions about what is possible. So the majority of people won't actually end up making games, but it's a great way to learn. And, uh, you know, all the time. Once a month at least, I get a, a phone call from someone in Silicon Valley who's starting up a company, and they say, Andre, we're starting up a new company. We're doing you know, some kind of web aggregating this, that, SEO, whatever. And I'm like, totally boring. Don't want to hear about it. And they go, but we need a really good programmer. Do you have any game programmers available? Because we just want to get them into this. So they want those kind of people, that kind of thinking. You know, So it's a mm-hmm. great way to learn, and it's a really, really marketable skill, even if you don't use it uh, for making games. Absolutely. So speaking of skills for today, like what are you doing today? Right. So today, uh, so the, you know, obviously with COVID that kind of put, uh, put a break into all the things I was working on. So right before uh, COVID, I was working on uh, a couple interesting projects, uh, gaming related. So I was doing a, uh, a gaming, uh, gaming pen. So the world's first gaming pen with a screen in it, accelerometer, gyro, sensors, sound, uh, microphone, uh, wireless, and uh, the uh, alpha uh, of that is was complete. I was also working on another gaming watch, kind of an Arduino-based uh, gaming watch for kids with, again, accelerometers and so forth uh, and, and that kind of stuff. That was, you know, kind of put on hold. And then what happened was uh, kind of, this was kind of all at the same time, about 2018, I believe, at the end of it, I was uh, called up by uh, Tommy uh, Tolerico, uh, who's the uh, kind of composer and, and music god of gaming. I know he's done hundreds uh, of games, the music for hundreds of games. And so he contacted me also through Dave Perry, uh, you know, the uh, former founder of uh, Shiny Entertainment and, and so forth. Dave's a good friend of mine. So they contacted me and they said, hey, we want to create a new Intellivision and, uh, for the 21st century. And uh, so I said, well, that's awesome. But I get these calls all the time. We want to make a new Atari. We want to make a new Coleco. You name it, I get a phone call. And so, you know, Tommy and I started having conversations and uh, – he agreed uh, that uh, I told him that the reality is it's going to take about two years to develop this hardware, not two months or six months. It's going to take about two years. So he agreed to it. And so I agreed uh, to be the first uh, engineering hire, kind of the, the uh, lead engineer and chief scientist. And so uh, I developed the game controllers for the new uh, Intellivision Amico. And then uh, I built up the engineering team to do the uh, console. So did the hiring uh, for the the team to do the console. 
And so we did that project. Uh, we showed it off at uh, E3 two years ago. And then, of course, COVID hit, and then everything got kind of put on back burner, uh, which just gave them time just to keep working on games. But the hardware was done. The hardware was done two years ago. And then uh, they've been kind of putting off and pushing uh, launch dates, you know, now really uh, due to this chip uh, shortage. So <laughs> that project, yeah. yeah. So that project, and so that, that'll come out uh, early next year, and, and maybe uh, some units will ship uh, late this year, uh, the Founders Editions and so forth, those kind of uh, units. So, so my, my big question before we move on from that is, what are your favorite in television games? Uh, I, so I would probably say the the Intellivision, uh, you know, I was an Atari person, but on the Intellivision, what I liked about it was, uh, you, you know, some of the games had really, they had really good sports games. And that was the thing that you couldn't find on the Atari at the time. So competitively, you know, I had both systems, of course. And so... On the in television, I really liked the sports games, and I'm not a big sports gaming kind of person, but I do like to play, you know, maybe baseball or football. So I like the baseball, and then of course the voice synthesis games, you know, B17 Bomber, for example, <laughs> with the voice yes. synthesizer. So I, you know, I and, and and you know, as a game developer, when I looked at these things, you know, when I was younger, I was just like, oh my god, this is amazing! I have to do this. How does this work? And so uh, that's what I liked about uh, the Intellivision were those kind of games. So the sports games, and then anything with the voice synthesis, uh, you know, definitely was uh, what you know was my favorite. So I assume that this new hardware does not require a separate add-on to do the voice synthesis. No, no, no. So yeah, uh, you know, what's publicly uh, available about it is the uh, the console itself is a system on a chip, a Qualcomm uh, processor, uh, multi-core processor. And then, uh, you know, it's not meant to be an Xbox killer or a PlayStation killer. So this is meant to play family-friendly uh, games. But the difference about the Intellivision really is the controllers. That's where the secret sauce is. So the, the idea was Number one, I wanted to make the world's most powerful game controller, and these are, hands down. Once people see the hardware, if you open up an Xbox controller, PlayStation controller, anything else, these controllers are full-on computers. They're handheld computers. They're standalone uh, handheld gaming consoles. Uh, now, some people may not like the way that they look, but they look that way because, you know, Tommy and uh, all of the Intellivision guys wanted it to look like and harken back to what the uh, original Intellivision looked like. But under the hood is a, a tri-core, you know, 32-bit uh, risk processor, you know, uh, gyro, accelerometer, high-gain microphone, uh, force feedback, uh, a really cool disk system that I created, uh, which there's patents about it, which, uh, you know, allows you to, you know, kind of ro rotate your thumb around, and then it also can sense pressure, and it can do this uh, very, very uh, accurately. And so the whole idea was, can you build a cell phone? So it's like the technologies, we want up, you know, an iPhone 3 for $10, you know, $20 a unit. That was the challenge. So, you know, I was up for it. And, and so anyway, uh, so that's kind of what the system is about. And then the other thing is that, you know, it comes with two controllers. It plays up to eight. So the whole idea is we want people to be able to play in the living room like we used to and just hang out and play games with each other on the couch and just have fun. And then since all of the uh, controllers have full RGB color touch screens, you can have a whole other kind of game experience because you can see what's going on in, in high resolution and do things on that screen that the other players can't play. So it just opens up a whole new kind of game 
mechanic for game developers to create cool media and cool content that they've never had the opportunity really to do because there's no screens on any of the controllers. You know, so, you know, of course, the Dreamcast had a little uh, black and white uh, LCD screen, but no one really used that. So anyway, so that's the whole idea. It's uh, the focus is really not on the console, but on the types of games you're going to be able to make and the ability to have, uh, you know, eight controllers uh, at one time. That's really neat. What's the operating system? Uh, so, well, the, the system is a Linux Android. It runs kind of a Linux Android, kind of a custom version. So uh, that's what it's running under. And then uh, we have, uh, you know, the a graphics system uh, that we developed and, and so forth for it, which, uh, you know, uh, uh, run the system. And then the controllers themselves run on kind of a, a modified HTML5 so that designers can create applications for them that, you know, do things, uh, you know, on the PC and then, you know, easily, easily portable to these uh, handhelds. But on the handhelds, on the controllers themselves, they can run completely independently. So you could put, for example, an Intellivision emulator on it. You can run Doom or Quake on these things, uh, <laughs> you know, things like that. So what I'm excited about is to see what people do with the controllers separately uh, once, of course, everybody's going to open these things up, pack them, figure them out, and, you know, and, and make all kinds of cool stuff for them. Oh, man. I mean, that sounds like a terrific way to play werewolf or to play quiz games or all yeah. sorts of stuff where you have to yeah. have secret information passed between people who are sitting next to each other. Right. That's terrific. Well, Andre, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. I, uh, you know, appreciate it. And, and I, you know, had fun uh, talking about everything and talking about the uh, good old days. So thank you very much, Andre Lamoth, uh, for joining us today. Thank you for talking with Alex and having this great, insightful look into more of the earlier days of gaming and what it came to. Have you seen um, pictures or like renderings of the the Amico? Uh, I've seen a couple of them. They look insane. They look wild. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I love it. I I thought it was like super. It looks like what they wanted to try and do if they had an, like an infinite budget in the eighties. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> you know what I think of when I see the Amico? Hmm. I think hmm. of the. I don't know you 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 guys have take some long flight before or not, but they usually have those entertainment system yes. on on the plane. It, it looks exactly like those stuff, and I really love playing yeah. those stuff because like taking like like 14 hours of flight and I just have nothing to do during the flight and that's my only way to have some entertainment because I am really not a fan of movie and I will just keep playing that yeah that entertainment system if that one is on the plane and I I I probably don't have a problem spending my 14 hours yeah no the, the, it's it's definitely kind of reminiscent of that it's very I love those I thought that was a great installment in flights and I'm bummed that I haven't seen them as much, but we'll see. What have y'all been playing recently? Pokemon Unite is a fun game. Um, it's very digestible because matches are, limited, are timed for 10 minutes. There's like a limit. So that that's helpful in just managing playtime on a MOBA. It's also a very like ease of entry MOBA. Uh, it's makes it really fairly easy to get used to a few of the Pokemon and what they do. They just released Blastoise in the update, so I've been working on playing him, and he's a very functional character. Uh, big tank and can also do a lot of damage and push people away. 
He's very fun to play, and he looks really rad. All of the Pokemon look really cool and have awesome animations when they do their attacks. So it, it, I feel like it does it justice in that regard when you're feeling immersed in the Pokemon world. Other than that, still been playing Breath of the Wild. Um, a lot more of the Jackbox games as well recently. Those have been fun with my coworkers and other things that I've been playing with them. Like They, they do such a great job of entertaining and making like a fun party game that's digestible anybody else been playing anything instead of moba i try some of the tower defense game the first traditional one the one that you just place your Ooh, something yes i really like it because playing a lot of games nowadays especially the, those on the phones you, you usually don't use the brain you just press button okay mm. and now now it's fine but playing a tower defense game it I can really make some strategy myself mm -hmm. and it feels really good when it works. Yeah. Uh, I was, the tower defense games were a set of games that I played a, a lot when I was younger. The, I, there was just something satis so satisfying about playing those games. And then there was also, uh, I'm a, I was a big fan of the Bloons tower defense series. Um, if you're aware of that flash game genre. There's not many tower defense games that I'm aware of currently, but what's the one that you've been playing? It's actually on phone. It's called Arc Knights. I noticed it just because they have been having a lot of wonderful soundtracks, and I, I say, what? Why not give it a shot? And I try it, and I really love it. Even though it's a little bit gacha game, but overall, uh, it's pretty fun just to play it. Oh, cool. That's good. Uh, gotcha games are interesting. That's another conversation that we'll have to have. <laughs> we probably save it for later. Episode. But I think it's about time we wrap up for today. Uh, we'd like to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maiden afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services. And we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Chen. I'm Red. I'm Anthony. And I'm Miles. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time.